17 and then verses 41 to 44. Mark 12 and verse 13 to start. Here John Mark records for us, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. And in verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor woman has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. May God bless to us that reading of his word. And so we're continuing our series, Who Are the Baptists? And today we're looking at us being a generous people. Can I have my slide, please? Thank you. The Baptists as a generous people. And now we're going to rely upon technology and see if this works. It may not, so in which case I'll be humming. No, it's decided not to work. Money. Money. What a contentious issue. How dare you, Cole, 
discuss with us in the church context money. Probably an easier subject to talk about will be sex. So I've decided to spare you sex this morning and we're going to talk about money. Money. Lycra, wonga, spondulix, dosh, or what the northerners call brass. Why is it so contentious? Well, because we often think of our lives being private, don't we? And money being a private issue. And it was certainly very contentious in the first century BC. And it was because it was contentious that a group of men from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, hatched a plot to try and catch Jesus out and bring to him a question about money. We're told in verse 13... Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Their intent was quite clear. Let's catch this man out. Let's make him either to be an enemy of the people or an enemy of the state. That was the plan behind it. But Jesus is the Son of God. We can't fool Jesus. He sees our hearts. He sees the hearts of men. And he saw into their hearts. And we're told in verse 15, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. He asked or said to them, why are you trying to trap me? You see, the trap was quite clear. If he said, yes, pay your taxes to Rome, that immediately will put him at loggerheads with the people because the, the, Rome was the state and this was particularly perhaps an unfair tax. And it would make him out to be not a man of the people and he would lose his popular support. But if he said, no, you shouldn't pay the Roman state, automatically it then puts him at loggerheads with the state where he could be called a, a rebel and perhaps lose out. It's a bit like discussing Brexit. It was a lose-lose situation. No right answer, no way of really making any progress a subject that will generate more heat than light. And the first thing we see in this passage is this, the image of man. The image of man, or in fact the image of a man. Jesus says taxation is about the image of a man. You see, the Jewish people were taxed very heavily by the Roman state. There were three main areas of taxation. There was a ground tax, which meant basically you gave one-tenth of all grain that you received and one-fifth of all wine that you received, and this was partly paid in kind and partly paid in money. Then there was an income tax, which amounted to, wait for it, 1% of your income. Wow, that's going back some, isn't it? 1%. And then there was a poll tax. And a poll tax was levelled on levied on all men aged 14 to 65 and all women aged 12 to 65. I'm not sure why there's a little discrimination there, but there was. Okay. And this tax amounted to one denarius and was simply a tax paid annually for being alive. If you were alive in Palestine and Judea, you paid one denarius to Roman state every single year. That was the poll tax. And this particularly was the tax that's been referred to here. And it was a great affront to the Jewish people. Why? Because it spoke of domination. The Jews were a fiercely independent people, a bit like the British. And they've been subjugated for centuries of their existence. First of all, they were subjugated by the Egyptians until the great exodus. And when they moved into two kingdoms of the northern and southern kingdom, they were subjugated by the Babylonians, and then by the Assyrians, and later on by the Persians. They had a small period, around about 100 years of freedom, before eventually Rome moved in 
and began to subjugate them underneath a procurator governed through Rome itself. And of course the most famous procurator that we know is Pontius Pilate. This tax was a constant reminder that the Jewish people were not free. It was a contentious tax. In fact, when it was introduced in AD 6, they had a revolt in, in Jerusalem. And a man called Judas the Galilean in AD 60 revolted against Rome and, and caused his revolution against paying this tax. And as a consequence, he and his sons were executed and the, and the Romans brutally suppressed the revolution. But from that revolution, AD 60, became the Jewish zealot movement, which we find in the New Testament and eventually, of course, was made famous by Masada, in the later on happening in AD 70, the Battle of Masada. So we find here that we have a reminder of the fact that people weren't free. And so they hated this taxation, they hated the poll tax, but not only because of the domination, but also because of idolatry. Jesus said, go and find me a coin. And they went and found a coin. It was interesting that none of them were carrying a coin, which perhaps suggested that they didn't want to carry one of these coins because these coins were particularly distasteful for the Jewish people. But denarius, we're told, was a silver coin and had a colour on one side. It's a silver coin. And, and with silver and, and on the opposite had an impression, as you see here, of the empire, uh, Emperor Tiberius. On the opposite side, on the, on the reverse side of the coin, it has a picture of the emperor on his throne. And it says in the Bible, you shall not make a graven image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or is on earth beneath, or is in water under the earth. That's from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And when a Jew saw this coin and they saw a graven image of the emperor and they saw a graven image of the emperor on his throne that was abhorrent to the Jews. They hated the idea but they were forced to pay and the, and the poll tax could only be paid in a Roman coin and the only coin it could be paid in was the denarius. So in other words, once a year the Jewish people would be forced to handle something that they considered to be idolatrous, something that was distasteful. And not only that, it had an inscription on it. On the front of the coin, the inscription read, Tiberius Caesar's Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. This coin on the obverse, the front of it, claims that Tiberius is the son of Augustus, who himself was viewed as a god. In other words, that this emperor is the son of God. And on the back of the coin, you can just make it out, it says Pontifex, Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest in every aspect that coin in its engravement and its inscription was an affront to the Jewish people so many people wouldn't even touch it we're told Hippolytus a 3rd century theologian writes the zealot wouldn't even touch the coin let alone pay that particular tax the Romans had planned to do something inflammatory it would have been to make this coin and to insist the people, the Jewish people, pay it into uh, into um, a, a, a tax. And so Jesus, if he said yes, pay this tax, would fall out of the people. If he said don't pay this tax, he would declare in himself like Judas the Galilean. He could become Jesus the Galilean, another rebel, another one falling foul of the imperial might of Rome. 
But Jesus is the Son of God, the real Son of God. Not the Son of Augustus, the Son of the living God, Elion, the God Almighty, God, the God Most High. And he has a great wisdom. He speaks of it being about ownership. And he asked for a coin. And they brought him a coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose description? And Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. He took the fight right back to them and said, look at the coin. Whose mark is on it? Whose face is on it? Whose inscription is on it? And they couldn't deny it. There it was in front of them, Caesar's. And he says, therefore, give that back to Caesar. Because it belongs to him. He's even got his face on it. But give to God what belongs to God. Jesus was almost taunting them. He's saying, can't you see? But this is Caesar's. He has his picture on it. And his name, who else would this belong to? But Caesar. You see, image implies ownership. I don't know if you've ever been in a shop where you've got some children misbehaving and strangely enough, the parents can't be seen. They've gone off some other aisle to leave their children just to make a mess and a noise in the aisle that they're in. And someone will say, whose children are these? Hoping that someone will own up to owning these children. And when the person comes, you're looking to see if they look like or even behave like their children. I found online some great examples of the way that we can look like our parents. And these are all famous people. So, for example, here we have um, Meryl Streep and Mammy Gummer. Strange name, Mammy, isn't it? Apparently, um, it was a nickname given to her, but she's kept, and Gummer was, her, uh, was the name of her father. Mammy Gummer, you can see the likeness there. What about this likeness? Stephen and Haley Baldwin. Bette Midler and her daughter Sophie, another great one. Tom Hanks and his son Colin Hanks. That's Damon Waylands and Damon Waylands Jr. So not he's looked like his father, he's even got the same name as his father. One of her ladies, yeah, Clint Eastwood and his son Scott. And there's Demi Moore and her daughter, Ruma Willis. Obviously, Bruce Willis was her father, and Ruma Willis. So, you can see the way that you look, you can look like your parents. And these coins had the image of Caesar on them. And Jesus was saying, because they had the image of Caesar, they belong to Caesar. You give your taxes because these coins don't belong to you, they belong to the man whose mark is on that coin. But then he says this, he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. And so we turn to the image on man. And here Jesus is making a distinction that coins belong to the person whose name, whose name and whose figure or image belongs on it. But we, as human beings, don't belong to Caesar. We don't belong to the state. We don't belong to anyone else except God. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. And this is a critical part of the Bible. 
He's our creator, our heavenly father. Like children look like their parents. We have the image of God in us. We are to look like our God and we do because we have certain parts of our humanity, our essential being that God has put into us that makes us unique. We are creative. God is a creator. Do birds build cathedrals? Do birds build, have architects who build their nests in certain ways, in certain styles, or have artists? Mankind is made in the image of God. There's certain parts of who we are that reflects God who's our creator and who's our father. The way we have families together, the way we love is a reflection of our heavenly father. We have the mark of God upon us. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of God, which is why murder is such a heinous crime. Later on in Genesis 9, verse 6, it says, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. When we take the life of another person, we are destroying the image of God in that person. That is serious. Many verses in the Bible refer to this critical fact that you and I are made in God's image. And what does this mean? It means that we don't belong to ourselves. We live in an age that teaches that we are free and we can do what we want. The Bible says, no, that's not true. The Bible says you belong to God and I belong to God. We are naturally orientated to knowing and worshipping God. And when we ignore that, we spend frustrated lives running away from the truth. But you and I need God because we were made to need God. We were made to know God. We were made to worship God and be in a relationship with him. That's why people are so frustrated in this world. They run away from God. They run away from church. They run away from Jesus Christ. And they run away to emptiness. And they have to fill that void with drugs and with alcohol and with sexual perversion, all these other things, because they don't know the truth, because they don't know their father. We are made in God's image. We need God. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him. This is so important. such an important teaching of the Bible. And that's why Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. And the Bible refers to this meaning that we belong to God is that we, our lives should be spent in the love and the service of God and our money should be spent in the service of God to extend the kingdom of God and to bring his blessing to others. And the principle in the Bible that talks about this is this principle of tithes which quite literally in the Greek means a tenth. Tithes. And we as Baptists believe in living generously supporting the work of God's kingdom. You've probably seen um, these massive barns that exist around our countryside. These are called tithe barns. They were used to collect the tithe after the harvest. They had to be big because the harvest could be great and every farmer had to bring a tenth of his, of his, uh, of, um, his wealth or of the, the um, income of the, the soil and it was piled up in these barns and, it, and these barns were used to support the local community. This is Pilton Tithe Barn in Somerset and this is a massive tithe barn which you can see in Great Coxwell in Oxfordshire on the edge of Swindon. 
Tithing is not a Hebrew idea. In fact, it was practiced in Babylonia, Assyria, Persia, and even in China. And it occurs in the Bible, first of all, when Abraham meets the king of Salem in Genesis chapter 14. And we're told that in, this, in that encounter that Abraham gave Melchizedek, the king of Salem, a tenth of everything. And later on it's recorded in Hebrews chapter 7. The writer of the Hebrews says, just how, think that great, how great he was. But even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. And the principle of tithing is that we give a tenth to the work of God. And so we find it happening later on with Jacob, who encounters God in Bethel. And in Jacob, uh, in Genesis, sorry, not Jacob, Genesis 28, it says this, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, all of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And this later on becomes a principle. So in Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says this, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your, your fields produce each year. So much so it became a declaration that the Jewish people had to make every year. They used to give a declaration that's found in Deuteronomy 26. You shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. It was to show the love that they've received by giving it back to others. The Jewish people believed that God was responsible for giving them the life in their body, the beat in their heart, the air in their lungs. And therefore they lived their mental, or the mental lived their lives in thanksgiving to God. And all that they received through the land or through their employment, they took a side of it to give back to God to reflect the blessing that God had given them. It's very different to our age. Our age we talk about self-made people, don't we? I've made myself great. I've made myself intelligent. I've made myself wealthy. The Bible says that's arrogance. That's not the way we're meant to live. Our lives, we don't give ourselves life. When you were in the womb and, the, and you were growing up in your mother's womb, you weren't responsible for that life. You weren't working for that life. You weren't trying to work hard to make sure you grew at the right time so that when you were born, you were born a healthy child. You are purely the instruments of God's giving of life. We aren't responsible for our lives in that way. Life is a gift that God gives us. And employment and all the things that we enjoy, our education is a gift. We're very fortunate in this country that we can have education like we have it, that you can go to university and get a degree or get a good job. In other nations around the world, people don't even get taught to read and write or do basic arithmetic. They struggle in a way that we don't struggle. We need to live lives of thankfulness to God. Because lastly, this passage talks about the image for man. The image for man. Because Jesus, in trying to encourage his disciples to be generous people, he took them to the court of women in the temple. And the court of women was the second court. The first court was the court of Gentiles, where only Gentiles could go and worship. The second court was the court of women. The third court was the court of men. And the final court was the court of the priests. So you had these four courts divisions in the temple in Jerusalem. And in the court of women was where they had the monetary offering was given. And they had around the court of women 13 small trumpets. 
was a brass instrument with a big cone at the, like a trumpet cone at the end in which people threw their coins or pushed their money into the, the temple treasury. And there could be an air in this place of great ostentation. People, because the coins, in the way that you could go in there and make a point of drawing out their money or their bags and clattering it because they're brass, clattering it in loudly into these, 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 these cone trumpets to make a noise so everyone could see how much money, how much wealth they had and how generous they were. Jesus spoke about it in Matthew chapter 6. He said, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the street to be honoured by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in, in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know in what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus was saying that some people give in such a way it's almost like they grab those trumpets and start to play them say, look at me! I'm a wealthy person, look how generous, how wealthy I am. Look at my giving. Jesus said, that's not the way we give. We give in secret. We give generously but quietly. So the only one that's glorified, the only one who's blessed is God, not us. And as he watched those men and those other people flushed with cash, putting out of their wealth, he suddenly noticed a very poor widow. Verse 42, a poor widow came up and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. And Jesus says, look, that woman's given more than all those wealthy men that have laid in their fortune into that tub because they've given out their wealth and she's given out of her poverty. Verse 44, they all gave out of their wealth but she has put out of her poverty, put in everything she had to live on. Everything that she had to live on. These two coins that she offered were the lepton. It's the smallest coin used in Palestine. It was so small, in fact, it was very difficult to mint because they couldn't get the stamp on it. It's a very, very small coin. And the lepton was worth one four hundredth of a shekel. In other words, you needed four hundred of these coins to make one single shekel in Israel. That's how small it was. In terms of modern currency, that's about one-sixteenth of a penny. You'd need 16 of these to make our penny up. In terms of the daily wealth in that day, the average person, the average worker was paid a denarius and it was worth of a denarius a 64th part, one in 64 of a denarius. That's how small it was. But she had two of them. Two of these very small coins. And she could have kept one for herself. She could have only given half. That was more than a tithe. It was much more than 50%, than 10%. But she puts in all, both coins, 100% in what she's got out of her poverty. It's a very small amount, but a great sacrifice. This widow has stood up before the disciples as an example of generous giving. Isn't it amazing that someone like this widow, we don't even know her name, but has been taught down the generations as an example of generosity. People who would say they've got nothing to give, and yet she gave more than most. 
and we remember her and honour her for it. God wants us to be like this widow, to be generous givers. We're encouraged as Christians to be generous givers. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Not thanksgiving to us, but thanksgiving to God. And Paul told his protege, Timothy, command them, that's the church, command the church to do good and, and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In fact, it says in Proverbs 22, the generous will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. It's like we said earlier on when we're teaching for children. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But you need to remember this is not a salvation issue. You're not saved by your generosity. You're not saved by your giving. We give not to be saved. We give to give thanks. We give to say thank you to God. Never let Satan tell you, unless you're a generous Christian, you're not a saved Christian. That's not true. Our salvation is through the generosity of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice upon the cross. Not about any sacrifice we could ever make. Because no sacrifice we would make would be good enough to pay for our sin it's not a salvation issue it's an issue of gratitude generous givers are people who are grateful for what God has done for them and the Bible is quite clear and this is a great release for us we're called to be happy givers if you are an unhappy giver then perhaps you're giving too much because you're called to be a happy giver if you give out resentment or out of compulsion that's not the way God wants us to give and therefore I say don't give Give because you are happy about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want you to give resentfully. And if that's that's how you feel about giving to God, then don't give. God wants generous givers, but those who are happy to give. Because lastly, we're told here, and do not forget to do good and share with others, for such... For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And when God is pleased, God actually blesses those who give. Now, we're not talking here about health and wealth. That kind of dodgy theology who occasionally does the circuits around the church is not what we're talking about here. It's a natural reaction. When we give, we are blessed. As Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive. And the blessing comes because we share what God has given to us. Luke chapter 6, given it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and run over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And then later on, Proverbs say, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he reward them for what they have done. And finally, Acts 20, 36, Paul says what we heard earlier on with the children, it's more blessed to give and to receive. When we give, God blesses us through that giving. Some of it's through treasures in heaven. Some of it's because we experience the joy of seeing what God can do in the lives of others. Some of it's because as we give to God, we receive such a thrill in realising what God has given to us that it makes us realise just what giving is all about. God is no man's debtor. Let me tell you finally about James Marshall. James Marshall left his family home in Jersey as a young man 
and like so many others in the 1800s of America, began the long migration west. Unfortunately, he contracted malaria whilst living in Missouri and was advised to go further west still. And so in 1845, he arrived in California. He worked a number of different jobs, even became a soldier for a while, and eventually entered into partnership agreement with a man called John Sutter. And, he, and they agreed to build a sawmill, which is that mill there. When as they were building the mill, they discovered the spillway they had constructed was far too narrow to handle the amount of water needed to operate the mill. And so they began to enlarge the spillway. And as they began to do that on the morning of the January 24th, 1848, Marshall discovered in the soil of that spillway large flakes of gold. It was of the highest quality. They melted it down, did some tests on it, and discovered it was around about 23 carats, this gold. And that discovery sparked the Californian gold rush, one of the greatest gold rushes in history. And yet Marshall himself never, ever became rich. He didn't profit from his discovery. The mill project, it failed. His mines did not produce gold. And the vineyard he brought went bankrupt. In old age, he was reduced to abject poverty and died alone in a small wooden shack. You see, it's very easy to think that money is the end of all our our discomforts. It's a great goal to have, but money is an unfaithful mistress. She can leave us at any time. Paul said to Timothy, commend them to do good, be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. We share because God has shared with us, because God gave his all upon the cross. That widow gave her all into that temple treasury. But Jesus gave his very life. And we share because it's more blessed to give than to receive. God has given to us. Let's also give unto others. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final.